turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1 because um, I want to actually begin by reading the introduction to the book because the book of Acts, which we're going to be talking about tonight, introduced, has the most complete self-introduction of any other book in the Bible. I mean, um, if every book of the Bible had this complete of an explanation or introduction to it, an explanation, uh, there would be a whole lot less debate and conversation about who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, and so forth and so on. So if you don't mind doing that, and would you stand with me as we read this opening portion, at least the first 10 verses or so. Um, it begins this way. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up into heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostle that He had chosen. So obviously, again, He's referring to the gospel of Luke. He says, after His suffering, He showed Himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. And He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So we have recorded at least 12 to 13 different separate times that Jesus appeared, sometimes to a large number of people after His uh, crucifixion, His resurrection, giving proof that He had in fact been raised from the dead. He goes on, on one occasion while He was eating with them, with the apostles, He gave them this command, "'Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift My Father promised.'" which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, essentially we're asking him, is the millennium going to start now? The millennial reign of Christ and his kingdom. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. I just wish more people paid attention to that. Anyway, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. Well, you can be seated now. In that opening passage, there are really three things of importance that are being really kind of, I'd say, the three points of emphasis or emphases uh, in the passage. And the first one is regarding this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Later on, he refers to it as the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, basically, essentially, says the key for the gospel to go forward is that they would receive this baptism. And the word baptizo that's used there is a very specific word. In fact, in Greek, there were two words that were used. One was the word bapto, which meant basically you dip something in, in a solution. In other words, uh, one of the ways we understand the word is a, a, a Greek writer of the Bible, Nicanor, actually gave us his recipe for making pickles. And uh, going back to about the second century before Christ, and in this recipe, he said, you first take the uh, cucumber and you bapto it in hot water. So you dip it real quickly. And then he says, you baptizo it, you drop it into the uh, vinegar or the uh, brine solution that you're going to put it into, and you let it stay in there for a long period of time. And so the idea is something that's immersed 
to the point where it absorbs completely uh, what, has been, uh, what it has been surrounded with. And so the description is kind of interesting because we have described, you know, being baptized in water, the idea of immersion. It's the word baptizo. That's why we don't sprinkle, uh, especially in wintertime. It'd be so much more convenient if I could just take a mister and spray you a couple times and, you know, hand you a towel and we'll be done. But, you know, the biblical model is always this idea of full immersion, somebody being lowered into the likeness of Christ's death, being raised in the likeness of His resurrection. The idea that the water overwhelms you and, and, and consumes you, if you will. And it's the same idea when he talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming into our life in a consuming way. And it's that thing that he said will bring uh, the empowerment, the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And we'll talk more specifically that, about that in a moment. The second thing that he touches on, he says that you will, as a consequence of that experience, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, not only is this another expression of what we call the Great Commission, but it also tells us that there is no geographical boundaries to the gospel, that it was God's intention that it reach around the globe uh, as well as across the street, but also around the world, and that that's the purpose of the empowerment. The primary empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the gifting that it gives is not simply to be an entertainment medium for the church or something that we can brandish and display. Uh, for example, we'll read about later on in chapter 8, we find in Acts where there was someone who actually wanted to buy the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he wanted to be known as the great power of God. And sometimes you hear people speak of their particular anointing or gifting of God as if it's something that is to, given to them to provide them with some kind of celebrity status. Uh, but that misses the point completely. The whole purpose of whatever power God invests in us as His servants is that we might propagate the gospel of the Jesus Christ to the world in which we live. Thirdly, the ultimate fulfillment of the Great Commission is going to be where He said, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen Him go into heaven. So the ultimate fulfillment of the Great Commandment is the second return of Christ. In other words, when do I know when I've finished my mystery? When Jesus comes back and sets up His kingdom on the earth. So now these guys, of course, were anxious for that to happen like right now. And Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. He reiterates that here again. And so, but ultimately, the end goal objective of our life mission is when Christ returns or we end our physical existence and go home to be with the Lord. Now, what's interesting as you look at the book of Acts is it seems to present us with two different kinds of encounters of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Because we have first and foremost, if we look at chapter, for example, John chapter 20, uh, after Christ's resurrection, it says on the, first, on the evening of the first day of the week. In other words, that Sunday evening after Christ rose, He rose Sunday morning, that Sunday evening, Jesus appears to His disciples in the upper room. And uh, He just sim simply uh, appears to them out of thin air, but He walks in through the dimensions of, of time that we can't, or reality that we can't sense. He appears in there, and it says, And when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, probably more likely He actually said shalom, but He said, Peace or shalom be with you. And after He said this, He showed them His hands and His side that, that they might know for a certainty that it was He. 
And he goes on, and after he said this, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace or shalom be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, the commission again to go preach the gospel to the world. And then it reads, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The word receive there, it's a Greek word, labano, means literally to receive well or to welcome something and to appropriate it by that welcoming. In other words, it's something that was being given to them. He breathed on them, it said, and he said, now receive what I am breathing on you, which is the Holy Spirit. We refer to that as the born-again experience, the new birth, because keep in mind, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would not be sent to the church until he had been taken from the earth. So it's something that after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, which is omnipresent because it's part of the Godhead, nonetheless would not be uh, active in the terms of ministering to the church until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ had taken place. And so as soon as Jesus is raised, he appears to his disciples that same evening and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that that is when they became born again. Because before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, nobody was born again. Now, some people get say, confused because they're saying, are you saying that nobody was saved? No, I think that people were saved, uh, but they weren't born again in the Spirit. <laughs> and so as a consequence, this was really the beginning of the new birth and explains a lot, I think, about the behavior of the disciples, something that I think is important for us to understand as well. Because for the previous three years or three and a half years, however it was, long it was that Jesus was with them, we consistently see them uh, act like spiritual dullards. I mean, they, they see all these things, and yet constantly they have trouble understanding. In fact, we know that after Jesus was arrested, they all fled and hid. Uh, and after he was crucified, they even dug a deeper hole to hide even deeper out of sight, as the passage we just read revealed, that they were inside the upper room, the doors locked, they're hiding away. We don't see this bold expression of faith because they didn't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. And I think it's important for us to understand that the source of our power, the source of our capacity is not in and of ourselves. And this is really, I think, a, a critical stumbling block for many believers because many times we try to conjure up the, the, the faith within ourselves. Faith itself is actually a gift that God gives us. I mean, faith is my response to what God has done in my life. And so as a consequence, they suddenly had this transformational experience. The Spirit of God was living inside of them. It's really what Paul is speaking about when he says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, he says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then he lays it out. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So again, Paul says, when you heard the gospel preached to you and you in response believed it, you became an inheritor. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit being put into you. The term seal there really implies a God placing a mark of ownership upon you in the same way that somebody would put a piece of clay, wet clay on an object they owned and put the signet seal in it or roll seal in it, which would have their name and their identification on it so that everybody knew that was their property. He said, God has put that kind of mark on you. 
So it may not be evident when you look in the mirror, but when the angels of heaven look upon the earth, they see you and they know who you belong to. You have been purchased with a price. You're God's possession. He's put His seal of His Holy Spirit upon you. So what may not be obvious to you and I because of our physical limitations is something that has shining neon lights in the eyes of the heavenlies. The angels of God know who you are. The angels of darkness also know who you are. <laughs> Satan's demons know who you are. And so that, that's something we need to understand, that God has made that a sealing evident to the universe. It's a spiritual reality. We belong to Him. But when we come to the book of Acts, if this is, uh, especially chapter 2, where we see the day of Pentecost, we see a secondary thing going on here. The first thing we find them being born again, and the book of Acts opens with them in prayer, seeking the Lord, reading the Scriptures, worshiping together, waiting upon God. And what are they waiting for? They're already born again. What they're waiting for is the thing that the Father had promised to them. And the promise that had been given to the Father was we read, for example, in the book of Joel, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, the reason I quote Joel 2 because of that is because later on in chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up and preaches, he quotes that passage and says, what you're seeing right now is what was promised by God to our forefathers, that He would pour out His Spirit in the last days. And we are evidencing that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there's two dimensions here, the Spirit's working in the life of the believer, I believe. The first thing is we see this indwelling experience that you and I experience when we ask Jesus Christ into our hearts. Now, asking Jesus into our hearts is kind of a contemporary phrasing of an experience in ways that we can understand, but it really means that my life has become indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. If you will, in the same way that somebody can be possessed by a demonic spirit that takes over their body and control of their life, in a very similar way, we have now been possessed by the Spirit of God, and we have come under the controlling power and influence of the Spirit of God. Where that really manifests itself is in what I would call a change in spiritual appetite. That when I gave my life to Christ, suddenly the things that I once wanted to live for no longer were attractive to me. I'm not saying that you can't still be tempted by sin, but the life without Christ was no longer something I wanted for myself. I wanted to live in Jesus. I had His Spirit inside of me. I wanted to be a Jesus follower. And that's that desire, that yearning in our hearts is something that changes. It's what causes the apostles and uh, the 120 other that are in the upper room to sit there waiting and fasting and prayer and in the Word of God, waiting upon the thing that, they, that Jesus said would be given to them. And then we see the secondary thing happening, which we call the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So you have the indwelling of the born-again experience. You have the empowering of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What the indwelling of the Holy Spirit really created was the new birth, the birth of the believer into the family of God. What the day of Pentecost created was the birth of the church as a corporate entity. It's really so that we say the church was launched on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit fell upon and empowered those who had already previously been uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God in their life. And what we see coming out of it is a dynamic in their life that had not previously existed. 
And I use the word dynamic specifically because he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, how do you understand the Holy Spirit coming on you? Well, it's very similar to the way that the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets of old. Elijah the prophet was not born again of the Spirit because Jesus hadn't yet died for his sin and the Holy Spirit wasn't given as an indwelling presence. But he had this power to carry forth his ministry because the Spirit of God, it literally said, would come upon him. And this is the same kind of thing he's talking about here, this prophetic dynamic, this miraculous dynamic where the Spirit of God comes upon him. In some ways, we see it with Jesus' baptism, that Jesus already was the Son of God. He had the Spirit of God living on him, but he went to John the Baptist, and as he's baptized, he's, we're told that heavens open up and the angel descends, or the, excuse me, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and he begins his public ministry. It's almost like a commissioning and an empowering for doing the work of the kingdom. Now, the question becomes, how do you get that kind of empowering? Well, I have a program for $29.95. I will sell you a blessing cloth that you can put on your head. And nobody, I'm afraid sometimes, I, I wish I was just making that up out of whole cloth, but actually... No, the, the, the answer, I think, is very simply when you look at chapter 5 of Acts, verse 31, he says, He gives His Spirit to as many as obey Him. That the real key to that empowerment is the surrendered willingness to say, God, you now can do with my life as you please. Now, you may be thinking, isn't that what happens when a person is born again and asks Jesus into his heart? Um, it can, it can but I just know from my own experience and talking with many other people that after I was born again, I came very quickly to a juncture in my life. For me, it was defined by the decision to be baptized. And I believe that the water baptism is really uh, an expression of this very thing that he's talking about here. But it's this whole attitude of heart that says, I have been born again. My sins have been forgiven. Lord, take my life and use it in any way that you want. Now, I look at some people like the Apostle Paul, it seems like he got the whole package in one fell swoop. <laughs> he struck down the, on, the, on the road to Damascus. I mean, he is born again in the Spirit of God. He is empowered and filled with the Spirit of God. All happens at once. Uh, for other people I've known, as well as for myself, there were really distinct experiences where I knew that I finally, being born again, came also to the place of absolute surrender of my life. And that was met in my life with a real sense of the empowering of God to not just be saved, but the empowering God to serve. And that, there again is the objective. God wants to empower every one of us, but what it requires from us is really a surrender of our hearts. And I know that just given the group of people here, not saying anybody specifically or I know something about you, but I just know the reality that there are some of you who you have, are born again, you've asked Jesus in your heart, you're, you're sincere in your faith, but you struggle with this idea of letting God have absolute authority over your life. I mean, you really do. You struggle with that issue. You, you, you say that you know it's the right thing to do and you kind of like to do it, but there's this battle going on over who's going to ultimately write the script for the rest of your life. Is it going to be a, an effort at autobiographical work of writing your own story, or are you going to let God write your story for you? That kind of coming to that absolute surrender, as Andrew Murray once put it. 
Because, and it's a very distinct thing because the word he uses is a combination of two Greek words, epi and erkomihi, and it, he, he binds these together, and it literally means to come upon, to overtake one. It's the Holy Spirit, uh, Thayer says, that descending upon and operating through the life of the believer. It's this idea of this energy of God that begins to usher forth from us. And there's, it's translated oftentimes by the word power, there is one word, exousia, where he says, for example, in John 1.12, that as, as many as received them, to them he gave the power or the exousia to become the sons of God. But that means that's the right of inheritance. As many as believed and received, he gave them the right to, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit and to bear the name of being the Son of God, that I belong to God. I'm part of his family. I've been adopted into his family. But the word that's used here is a different one. It's the word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamic. We get our word uh, dynamite. It's the idea of inherent power, but also, I think more accurately, it's miraculous power. He says, I'm going to empower you to do the miraculous. Now, some of you may feel like that's kind of grandiose, uh, but let me tell you that when you begin to step out and surrender to what He wants, you will find that God will do things through you that you know for certain didn't find their origins or their empowerment from you. There have been times that, that there will be times where you'll say things that come from a place that you don't even recognize, but as they come out, you can actually see the power of God touching and impacting somebody's life. You'll find yourself praying for people and actually seeing God do miracles in people's lives. You'll begin to believe that God responds to you. And, and unfortunately, sometimes people have that expression and they want to take the credit upon themselves. You know, kind of like, I prayed for them, they were healed because I have hot hands. Well, you may have hot, sweaty hands, but that doesn't really mean that you're ministering the power of God. I love the way Gail Irwin used to always term it. He said people were saying, well, I'm the Lord's anointed. And the idea of being anointed was they pour oil on your head. And he says, where's the glory in having a greasy hair? You know, but it's the idea somehow that it's about you. It's not about you. And that's the amazing thing. It's all of grace. It's an amazing thing that God is working such amazing things through you. So part of what we get hung up with in the church, especially in the Western world, is the kind of idea that God does that with certain individuals because they are ordained to the ministry, ordained to the priesthood, and we have this clergy-laity separation. We have those who are the servants of God, and then we have the rest of the people who are being kind of drugged behind their train. The truth of the matter is that God intended that His church be this power-filled uh, community of people who are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in individual, several unique and wonderful ways through them as a community and not simply uh, being relegated to one individual. That ultimately the ideal is that all of us live in this uh, anointing, this, uh, this empowering of the Spirit of God in our life that we might fulfill His great commission. 
And so that's why uh, even the term Acts of the Apostles as a title of this book is somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, the earliest date we have it is someplace early in the seventh, second century when Irenaeus uh, referred to it as the Acts of the Apostle. We don't know if he created it, that term, or it came on later on or, or what. But what we do understand is that it's probably not an accurate description because it's not so much the Acts of the Apostle as it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit working and moving through the apostles. I think it could have saved us a lot of trouble if he just would have given it that title. Because what we read again here in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, I understand it so far. This violent wind comes in and just starts swirling in the house. Hurricanes come indoors, okay? This is the dynamic he's describing. It's the rest of it that I can't quite get a picture in my head. And I've seen a lot of artists try to represent it, and it doesn't help me. It hurts me, actually. But it says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I get this picture of this great big wet tongue, you know, with fire dripping off of it. That, that doesn't help me. What actually he's saying is, Something different happened here, a little bit undescribable. And I, don't, I think it's like reading the book of Revelation. He's describing things that have not yet been seen except by him in Revelation, so nobody really quite gets it. But nonetheless, it was a very real thing, not because of how he described it, but because of the impact it had. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and to begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And it goes on to say that as these people are gathering in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday, by the way, the Feast of Weeks, that's why it's called Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, that's what it stands for. As they're gathered there from all over the world, suddenly they hear the apostles rising up and speaking in their native languages. In other words, they have this divine capacity to communicate the praises of God that are not native to themselves. They're speaking languages that they did not know with praise and worship of God. And so it becomes evident that something is happening here that's outside of human agency. It's outside of human ability. This is the power of God that's, that's working through them. So whereas the, the gospel, again, speaks about the, the born-again experience, how we have this new birth in Christ, uh, what we have here is really the birth of a church, the church as an entity, that a, a community of believers, if you will, that begins to emanate the power of the Holy Spirit in wonder-working ways. And that's why what we find from that opening outpouring of the Holy Spirit begins this, this story of the growth and the spread of the church over the next 30 years. So from the time of Christ's crucifixion, somewhere around 30, 31 B.C. till 60 to 61, uh, or excuse me, A.D., in that 30-year period, we're given this history of the church that is really nothing more than the flow of the Holy Spirit through the lives of men and women who are available to Him. That's all it comes down to. And we look at it and we read these stories and we say, isn't this amazing what God has done as if it was a historical anomaly when I believe it's a description of what God views as normal Christianity? And I think the problem is sometimes we can become comfortable with the abnormal and just simply assume, well, that was then, this is now. 
And there is a whole theological realm that says, well, those things were for then and they ceased and they're no longer active and operative in the church now. Problem is, you can't show me any place in the Bible where it ever says that. And I think what happens is, is that people often experience powerlessness in their life. They define powerlessness as normal and therefore say the church should be content with a powerless evangelism. And yet, I believe that God still wants to speak in power. I think God still wants to speak prophetically into people's lives. In fact, I think all good preaching has a prophetic element to it. Now, let me just say from my own perspective, there have been many times where I've shared messages and there has been a prophetic dynamic to it that I was completely unconscious of. So how do I know about it? I'll never forget the time the, the young lady came up to me after a message and says, my dad came to church with me today. I said, great. She said, and he told me he's never coming back. And I said, oh, uh, I thought to myself, was it really that bad? <laughs> um, and she said, I said, why? He said, because we were having this conversation yesterday and we come in here today and everything that we talked about, you said from the pulpit and he's convinced I called you up and talked to, talked to you about him. And he, he was offended that you were talking about him in public like that. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, I'd like to take credit for being that good, <laughs> but I really, really had no clue what God was doing. And that's something that I have experienced over and over again over the years, but it's also something that I've experienced as the recipient. How many times? Uh, let me tell you, this morning as I was just doing my devotional readings, and I, I read a lot of different sources every day, and, and every single one of them was on this passage. Every single one of them. And I sat back and I went, I think you're trying to speak to me here, Lord. <laughs> it's, I mean, what's the likelihood that all these different writers would all come down on the same issue on this day, right where I happen to be? And I look at that and receive and say, you know, God, you speak so clearly sometimes. And uh, despite the fact that sometimes I complain, you don't. You're, you're speaking so clearly. And what he wants us to understand is that the way that the church spread so that it reached around the known world at that time was the same way in which he wants to spread the gospel today. And what we need to do is become less content with what we can do in our own strength and our own energy through our own resources and become more dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can always tell when people are depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit, they pray. Because you're asking God to do in you and through you, which you know you don't have the capacity to do in and of yourself. Again, as a preacher, if you don't mind me being autobiographical, but I'm the only person I know personally like this, uh, the fact of the matter is that I know that when I put my notes down and organize my thoughts, it's really, really dried ink on paper, neither one which has life in itself. What is life-giving about any message that I ever hope to preach? It's going to be if the Holy Spirit takes those guttural utterances and ministers into somebody's heart something that is living and that is transformational. And essentially, that's all that ministry is. And that's what the book of Acts is all about because this emphasis upon the outflowing of the Holy Spirit as it comes upon the believers and then suddenly uh, is sprayed out on them like some kind of divine sprinkler system is what caused the church to grow and is still the source of which ca that causes the church to grow. And we depend so much upon other things, but when it really gets down to it, it says when the Spirit came upon them, all of them were filled 
with the Holy Spirit. They were already born again, but something filled them with a capacity and empowerment that they lacked previous to this. And again, the question comes up, well, if I feel like I need that empowerment in my life, how do I get that empowerment? Um, You ask for it. God, empower my life. And really quickly, I think you'll find God will begin to have a conversation with you. Particularly, He'll address those areas where you're not yielded to Him, where you don't want to give in to Him. Now, I know, I'm I'm talking about the people in the church down the street. I know it doesn't apply to you guys, right? (laughs) Because I know that you guys are completely surrounded and completely yielded. But, (laughs) you know, we were were having a a board meeting here before I came in this, this evening, and and we were talking about nobody wants to, you know, uh, really kind of, people don't want to admit their sin was kind of the comment. And I said, you know, of course they don't. I don't want to admit my sin. You know, I want to be able to go and saying, I love them. I'm just doing it with great harshness. You know, it's this rationalization. And yet, if you want to be the recipient of God's power and be able to express it in your life, you have to be willing to acknowledge things like that that come into your head and simply say, God, you know what? I'm not walking in love. I'm not walking in forgiveness. I'm not walking in your grace. It's in that surrenderedness that the power of God comes. And it expresses itself individually, uniquely, and wonderfully because He made you individually, uniquely, and wonderfully to be who you are. I love again what Oscar Wilde once said, don't try to be anybody else. Uh, just be yourself because everybody else is already taken. You know, so I mean, that's the idea that God created you the way you are. So stop looking in the mirror and saying, I wish I had a different nose. I put on so much weight. You know, go through all this stuff. I look frumpy. I don't, you know, stop it. God loves to work through frumpy. Most of us are. <laughs> I mean, it's just this whole kind of idea of becoming so self-focused upon ourselves, as if somehow our mission in life is to doctor ourselves up to the place that we become irresistibly attractive through personality or looks or whatever else. When God just simply says, yield to me, and you'll be amazed what I can do through you. I mean, the beauty or the real gloriousness of the gospel is the fact that God uses people like you and me. He uses ordinary people with ordinary issues and struggles, and that's the wonder. When God moves in power through somebody like you and me, and we sit back and say, it has to be God, (laughs) because there's no other explanation. You can't, the the minute you begin to pat yourself on the back, I mean, God's going to come up and start kicking you in the butt. It's just like, boy, where did that come from? Anyway. I mean, it's so important, I think, to understand this if we want to live in imitation of the book of Acts. And let me put it this way. Why do you think the book's there? Just to give us a history of what happened? Or do you think maybe God is, as Paul said, writing these things for our instruction, our exhortation? He's trying to speak into our lives and saying, look, this can be you. Now, keep in mind, we get kind of a misperception We have 30 years of miracles and wonders squeezed into 28 chapters. (laughs) Spread that out, and it's not like there were miracles happening every day, at least that we know of, but they happened regularly. They did happen. They did take place, and they, I do not believe they ceased with the first century. I believe that they're still moving and active, and that's why when people 
are, are, have needs in their life and they say, would you pray for me, whether it's sickness or any other thing, I will put hands on them like the Bible says and I will pray for them and I'll ask God to heal them. And it's amazing to me every time, but there are these occasions where people are touched and healed sometimes instantaneously, other times over a process, or lives are restored, marriages are fixed. Things happen because the Holy Spirit of God has the ability to fix stuff that's broken. He takes the broken things and He makes them whole. The crooked things, He makes them straight. He takes ashes and He recreates them into a thing of beauty. The idea of taking ashes, I mean, you can't get more gone than being ashes. And God says, so you take something that's completely gone and I will recreate it into a thing of beauty. Do you find yourself not praying for some things because saying, well, it's too late? It's too far gone? There's no fixing that? Do you do that too? Tell me I'm not the only one that thinks that way. I did it with my dad, 15 years preaching to him about Jesus. Every time I saw him, him rejecting it, arguing with me, not, not wanting anything to do it. And then I finally told the Lord, I'm not praying for him anymore. I'm done. He's had 15 years. He's rejected. I'm, I'm still a little tizzy fit. I'm tired of praying. I'm trying to share. I'm, not, I'm done. He's made his decision. And then he got saved <laughs> without my help, at least directly, you know. But that's the whole point is that we sometimes get to that point of saying, well, this is beyond being able to be fixed. Don't be afraid to step out and saying, look, I can't fix it, but I know a God, if He wants to fix this, He can fix this right now. Let's pray right now and ask God to fix it. Because you have not because you ask not, right? That's the whole idea. We're shown the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, one thing reading the Gospels and seeing Jesus do miracles, I can get that. I mean, like, I kind of expect that. But when he says, now, you're going to do greater things than what I've done. You know, Jesus never prayed with a sinner to receive Jesus because he was still there. God, in God's eyes, somebody coming giving their life to Jesus Christ is a greater work than even the thing that he did. And he's, he's saying, you will do these great things. So we can move in that confidence, knowing that God is going to move and minister through us as his servants. But we just have to have that surrender of our hearts and that boldness to operate in that realm and believe that God will respond. Well, a little background here before I continue on with some more comments <laughs> in the few minutes I have left. Written by Luke, the physician, uh, this ministry companion of Paul, someplace between 60 and 62 B.C., while, or 80, excuse me, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, probably. Uh, I think that Paul was uh, able to live with his own house, but he was always chained to a Roman guard. Luke was his constant physician and companion. He probably had time on his hands, and he began to compile the history of the church, probably wrote the Gospel of Luke at the same time. But we come back and say again, why did he write this book? Well, let me talk about four things that I think are key in this book. First of all, we've already touched on the dunamis, this miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. He, he really highlights that it is the Holy Spirit that built the church. It's the Holy Spirit that reached the world. And I can't say that enough because I think there's something in our minds that always wants to say it was the Holy Spirit, but it was also you know, and that's, that's where I think we get trapped in because then we start trying to imitate the Holy Spirit. By the way, you make a very poor imitation of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's allowing the Spirit of God to do His work. But secondly, it's also within that not only the miraculous power, but the miraculous community. And I say miraculous because when we read the descriptions of the early church, this is not something that was man-made either. 
When it says in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They submitted themselves to the, 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 the communication of the apostles of the gospel message and the, 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 the call of God upon their life. They, they were devoted to fellowship, this idea of the word actually koinonia that you've probably heard. It's a, it's a word that is a little hard to compress into a simple explanation, but it was basically this, this idea that they were living in community and fellowship and brotherhood in family relationship. But the emphasis upon, of koinonia is the idea that they had become a distinct and a unique identity within the larger Jewish community. Because at this point, they still saw them as part of, the, part of Judaism. They didn't see themselves as separate from, and yet they were of the synagogue of the Nazarene, but they recognized there is something unique about who we are. There's something that's separate and distinct in who we are. And it even goes on to say they, they went breaking bread together, which was more in the Middle East, breaking bread is more than just eating or having a meal together. You break bread with the people that you are bonded with. That's why they call it a covenant of salt, the idea that you eat a salted meal or a seasoned meal. Even today in the Middle East, if someone invites you into their home to have meal meal with them, they will break bread, and as you take your portion and eat it, you're basically saying, we have entered into a brotherhood, and we are committed to each other for life. So people don't just, you know, casually invite somebody over for dinner. When they're, you're invited into having a meal with somebody, there is a really an overture to into a brotherhood, a community. These people saw a greater identification within those who were other believers than they did with the greater part of Judaism of their time. And then basically it says, as a consequence of these things, they, the fourth thing was that they met together in prayer, but it says everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And I think that's an important thing to note. It is in that unity of the Spirit as God is ministering to and through each believer to one another as they're walking in mutual fellowship and love that the power of God begins to spread. And seeing that, doesn't it really explain why the enemy loves to bring division and strife between believers? Why he, Paul has to address this issue in Corinthians saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a, I'm a Peter, I'm a follower of Apollos, I'm this and I'm that, and he basically debunks that whole idea. Because that's really an operation of the power of darkness. Because a house divided, Jesus said, cannot stand. And so God is moving by His Spirit to create a unity and a community and a distinct identity as the followers of Jesus. Satan and the demons of hell are doing everything they can to create separation, division, and strife. Because He knows that in doing that, he can weaken the impact of our lives upon the world in which we live. Well, what's even more miraculous to me in this is the fact that we have unity within an amazing diversity. We may think of them all being kind of homogenous because they all walked around with the same robes on. But believe me, we had, there was a, a conglomeration. The first church had Judeans, it had Galileans, it had Grecians who were part of the diaspora. The reason they had to speak in multiple languages is because they had people from all over the world. And suddenly these people from just various cultures and languages were suddenly pulled together into a unity so that the first church was a megachurch, 3,000 people. The first church was a megachurch with 3,000 people in it. We get another chapter on, suddenly it's grown to 5,000 people. 
It's this huge, diverse group of people who are under the power of the Holy Spirit and living in this surrender to God, and there's this amazing unity that fulfills what Jesus said was the key. John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's why the third thing that stands out here is this, there's a word diagmos, which literally means perseverance or endurance. There was a miraculous perseverance that they began to experience because even though initially we see the church growing so quickly and rapidly, very quickly when we get to chapter 4, what do we begin to see? We begin to see opposition and persecution. Uh, the, Peter and John heal the guy who's, who's uh, lame at the beautiful gate. And in chapter 4, we suddenly find that they're arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. We go on to chapter 5, they're re-arrested. Both times they're commanded no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. One time they're beaten and forbidden to do so. And then we get to chapter 7, and Stephen is stoned. And it goes on to say that, uh, that the church began to be scattered all over the world. They begin to flee from Jerusalem. And we find James is arrested in chapter 12 and is beheaded along with Peter who is miraculously delivered. But the story begins to follow this pattern of persecution, opposition, hostility over and over again as the power of God expresses itself more wonderfully. The enemies, who it literally says in chapter 5 verse 17, then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Why? Because of the large crowds that were gathering around the apostles. And they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. And then it says in verse 40 of chapter 5, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. So that this leads to, fourthly, this idea of the diaspora uh, literally means the scattering. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that great day after Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the, the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So we find Philip goes to Samaria, and suddenly the Samaritans are giving their life to Christ in chapter 8. He then runs into the Ethiopian eunuch and leads that individual to Christ, and he goes back to Ethiopia. But then there comes in chapter 10 also the inclusion of the Gentiles. And that's where Peter is directed by God to go to Caesarea, to go to a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, and presents the gospel to him, and suddenly there's a whole new dimension. Chapter 10, he leads Cornelius to Christ. Chapter 11, Paul is called up on charges by the church in Jerusalem. What we've got, we heard, <laughs> this is interesting, they aren't angry because he preached the gospel, they're angry because he had dinner with this guy. You had dinner with a Gentile. <laughs> you know, he, I, one of the things I know that Peter didn't tell him is that they had pork ribs. They had baby backs. And he, didn't, he wasn't going to even go there because he knew he'd be in serious trouble at that point. But the whole point is that, that we begin to see this thing happening where God is changing their perspectives. Who does God want to save? When he said go to the ends of the earth, he didn't mean just go to the Jews who are in the ends of the earth. I mean literally to go to every person. Preach the gospel to all creation, it says in, in, in Mark 16. What is, it, it literally means to every person that exists on the earth. And that's why we begin to see this, this tremendous outpouring. In, in chapter 15, the church has to come together to decide what they're going to do with the Gentiles because not only are Gentiles getting saved, but now the Gentiles outnumber the Jews. And there are people called Judaizers who say, 
Gentiles have to have two conversion experiences. They first have to become uh, followers of Jesus, and then they have to become followers of Judaism. They not only have to ask Jesus into their heart, but they also have to let us cut off the foreskin of their penis. I mean, it's like, what's going on here? What is the dynamic that's taking place? And suddenly, it creates a crisis in the church that ironically still exists today. There still is this pattern within Christianity where people want to have people go through a secondary conversion. You ask Jesus into your heart, but what day are you going to church on, Saturday or Sunday? Oh, you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Well, what do you believe? Do you believe you're predestined or you have choice? And it's like we have all these doctrinal things we create for people. Well, you want to, you're born again, but have you spoken in tongues? And we begin to add these kind of things that almost become like secondary salvation. It's like, which is, is, is heresy. No, I asked Jesus in my Christ into my heart. I became complete in Christ. And what we find is that this became the first doctrinal conflict was over, can a Gentile become a full follower of Jesus Christ without also becoming a Jew? And the ruling of the church was, no, they don't have to become a Jew. We don't want them practicing pagan practices like eating things sacrificed to idols and engaging in the immorality that was often part of the worship within the temples. We don't want them doing those things. Don't let them go there. But at the same time, we're not going to worry about what they're having for dinner tonight. You know, we're not going to worry about whether they leave the locks on the side of their hair long. We're not going to worry about whether they've been circumcised or not. These are things that no longer have pertinence. What becomes pertinent is, do they know Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior? And if they do, then we need to exhort them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And that's it. You just need to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Well, last thing I'll say is, outline of the book. The book really has two sections. First 12 chapters the gospel of the Jews. And it's really Peter's apostleship. It's all about Peter. You get to chapter 13, it's the gospel of the Gentiles and all about Paul bringing the gospel of Gentiles. In fact, Paul himself defined it this way in Galatians 2.8. He said, for God who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so how did a Jewish sect suddenly become a Gentile religion that dominated the world. <laughs> and that's part of the story that Luke is telling. How did all of this transition? And the answer is the Holy Spirit began to move. So much of Paul's story, though, is really you know, based around the rest of the book, based around his three great missionary journeys that he took. Uh, we estimate that Paul traveled some 10,000 miles in his lifetime, most of it on foot, carrying the gospel. But I love what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 about his, his ministry. When he, he records it this way, he said, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. In other words, 39 lashes was the most you could whip somebody with uh, under Roman law. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false brothers. Which I think he's trying to say, if I can translate that properly, that he faced a lot of danger. He says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. You know, I, I, I can so identify with this. 
I mean, some, one time somebody said something really mean about me. <laughs> I'm with you, Paul, man. I get it. I've walked that road, man. I've been there. Anyway, I don't know if I've ever been in danger. I've just been in moments of strong dislike. But anyway, but what is the secret of his success? Well, listen to what he says in chapter 20, kind of like the final message that he gave to the churches before he was uh, carried away to Rome. He says to the elders of Ephesus, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to you both Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. There's a secret of his success. I said it's all by the Holy Spirit. What do we bring to the table? We bring this thing of saying, I no longer consider my life of worth to me. I know my ambitions, my desire for my life is no longer what's going to define me. I'm simply going to commit myself to one task, and that's that the world might know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And if they believe in Him and repent and follow Him, they will not only receive eternal life, but they can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the same. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a similar way, that you would just implant in our hearts and our minds that passionate sense of your purpose for us. Truly, you died on the cross to save us from our sins, and we are, what more can we say other than thank you, Lord Jesus? But Lord, you also have saved us so that we might serve you. And I pray, Father, that you would just bring us to that surrender of heart that you might be able to empower us and to use us as we are those who, as Acts 5.31 says, who obey you, you give the Spirit to as many as obey you, Lord, that we could know that same empowerment that comes from just simply following you as you lead and direct us, that you might be glorified, not only through me or my brothers and sisters as individuals, but through your church, as you miraculously bring us into that koinonia of fellowship. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.